Warning. The program you're about to hear contains language and ideas that may offend some listeners. 30 seconds and counter. This new and unusual dramatic program. Astronauts report it feels good. T minus 25 seconds. Our journey into the realm of the strange and terrifying. 20 seconds and counting. God wants to fill our hearts with dreams and visions. T minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. It isn't right. 12, 11, A little 10, fun, a little swapping of talk and goodwill. Ignition sequence start. Adventures Six, in time five, and space. Four, three, two, one. Existential Happy Hour begins now. Welcome to Existential Happy Hour. My name is Micah J. Murray. Today I'm delighted to share with you a very special holiday edition of Existential Happy Hour. Outside the snow is falling and inside my heart is filled with holiday cheer. So find a cozy seat by the fire and pour yourself a hot beverage because we're about to deck the halls and make the Yuletide gay. Just kidding. Outside my window, it is foggy and gray and way too warm for December. The weatherman says there's going to be thunderstorms tonight. Maybe December tornadoes for the first time in the recorded history of this state. The planet that I love is not doing well. The people are not doing well either. We're in the second year now of a pandemic that seems more and more everlasting with each passing day. A global health crisis that should have been over by now, but for the selfishness and greed and ignorance that is the true plague on our species. Inside it is bleak. I've been battling against seasonal depression for weeks now, and at the moment I'm winning that battle, but I'm exhausted and burned out. Everyone I know and love is exhausted and burned out, and I'm sure you are too. I say all this to let you know that if you are feeling not so much in the Christmas spirit, whatever the fuck that's supposed to mean, and therefore not a good candidate to listen to this episode, you're not alone. As I've told you before, uh, at Existential Happy Hour, I can't always promise that it'll be happy, but I can promise that it'll be existential as fuck. So in that spirit, I'm excited to present to you a very existential Christmas. What you're about to hear is a collection of Christmas-adjacent works that I've created over the past several years as I've followed a spiritual path away from the religion I once knew into the void of unknowing. We'll begin by deconstructing the idea of Santa Claus and then take a quick commercial break before moving into Advent, where I'll share with you some prayers I wrote in December's past when I was nearing the end of my faith in God, but still holding on by a thread. You'll hear the last sermon I preached as a Christian for the second week of Advent, remixed into an electronic song of sorts by my church friend, Fred Beecher. And then I'll conclude with a bit of experimental theology a paper I wrote at seminary reinterpreting the incarnation of Jesus after the death of God, a sort of uh, pantheist Christmas story, if you will. If you've been listening to the show since last year, you'll recognize most of this shit. I originally released it on Christmas a year ago, but a lot of life has passed since then, and a lot of new folks have found their way to the podcast over the past 12 months, and I've gotten a little better at mixing audio and making my shit sound good. So... When I listened to this the other day, 
I decided I wanted to re-edit it, remake it, re-release it for you. This is the new and improved holiday special, A Very Existential Christmas. So let's talk about Santa Claus. I didn't grow up believing in Santa Claus. I thought that Santa Claus was part of the devil's scheme to take Christ out of Christmas. I had read some literature to this effect when I was a child at the church where we attended, and I was like, okay. And Santa was never part of our family's traditions because it was about Christ, obviously. And so the idea of believing in Santa, I can't even really imagine what that would be like. I remember when I was a kid, folks would be like, is Santa bringing you presents? And we'd be like, no, the UPS man brings our presents. I thought it was silly and morally suspect to believe in Santa. So anyways, once I got outside of the conservative bubble that I grew up in and met kids who actually literally believed in Santa, that's kind of a mindfuck for me. Now we're watching these Christmas movies as a family this year because what else can you do? And so we've been watching all these movies where they're trying to believe in Santa at the same time that I'm coming on here and making these podcasts about belief. I was watching Miracle on 34th Street last night, and I was just struck by this line where they said several times that faith means believing in something even when it goes against your common sense. And I know it's just a movie, and it's a Christmas classic, and so whatever, we don't need to do discourse about Miracle on 34th Street. But how interesting that the message of that film is the very message that I'm trying to undo with my body of work, that I I don't believe that you should have to choose between faith and common sense, because if you do, what is your faith based on? In the case of Miracle on 34th Street, I don't know whether Kris Kringle was the real Santa Claus or not. I don't think Santa Claus is a metaphysical reality, so obviously he couldn't have been, but maybe within the world of the story, I don't know. But every character in that film that helped prop up the illusion that Kris Kringle was the real Santa Claus was doing it for sketchy reasons. Like Mr. Macy wanted to keep getting money and the judge wanted to avoid political disaster and the post office guys who dumped all those letters just wanted to get rid of all those letters. None of them actually believed that this man was Santa Claus, but they went along with it for various cynical reasons. And then more gullible people did believe. And the movie presented this as a good thing, like the true spirit of Christmas is to believe. And the curmudgeonly mom who was like, no, common sense is real, was now like, actually, maybe this beardy man is the real Santa Claus and maybe the real Santa Claus is a real thing. And I know you're not supposed to overthink it because it's a Christmas movie, but I really don't understand what's happening when we as adults conspire to make children believe in the metaphysical reality of a man at the North Pole who rewards your good and evil, but doesn't really exist. And we make our kids think that this guy exists. 
So they watch all these movies as a kid saying, oh, yeah, kids are the good guys in these movies because they believe against common sense. And the bad old Scroogey adults are always like, I don't believe because there's no Santa Claus isn't real. And then at the end of the movie, the adults do believe in Santa Claus is real and the children are vindicated for having believed against common sense. And there's a whole conspiracy where parents collude together with grandparents and everyone makes sure that the older kids collude against the younger kids. And everybody is in on this big conspiracy to trick kids into thinking that the man at the North Pole who brings presents down the chimney on Christmas Eve is metaphysically real. But then you tell them, actually, that wasn't real. That's not how the world works. Santa Claus doesn't actually live at the North Pole. There is no actual person who does the things that that mythical character does. And maybe it's all fun and games for the kids who believe, and it doesn't really make any difference. I can't help but wonder what messages does it give our children and what does it say about our values as a culture that we do this to fuck with people's conception of reality through manipulating their environments to prop up a story that we know is not true. So the Santa tradition is mass gaslighting, you know, eating the cookies and telling the kids that Santa Claus did it and really going through a lot of steps to make people think that reality is something other than what they see with their eyes. Sorry if you like it. Here's what I don't understand about this, is how the idea of the Santa Claus gimmick can be really aligned with anyone's values. Like if you are a theist, if you're a person who believes in God, and you want your kids to believe in God, and you do the Santa Claus myth with them as if it were real, and and actually make them believe that it's a real man in the North Pole who delivers presents. And then they get to a certain age and they find out the truth that, oh no, there actually wasn't a man up there listening to my requests and granting me what I asked for, depending on my moral behavior and also the degree to which I was able to believe that he was real. And then you want to turn around and tell people to believe in God, which is very similar in that you're supposed to be rewarded for belief instead of common sense. And, you, and you're supposed to believe that he's metaphysically real and causing things to happen in, in your world, even though you never actually see him. On the other hand, if you're a person who doesn't believe in God and you want to instill in your children the values of like skepticism and free thinking, why would you do a thing to try to bamboozle them into believing in the metaphysical reality of Santa Claus with all these movies and stories in our culture of how good it is to believe in Santa Claus and how bad it is to be like, he's not real. But then you want to tell them, no, you shouldn't believe in gods because that's silly. You should be a skeptic. So either way, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the Santa Claus gimmick, if you make your kids think it's real, it just, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And it's a lovely Christmas movie 
But in the real world, the same exact thing happens when all these politicians and pastors and fucking speakers and thought leaders and influencers come on here and prop up the idea of a God who loves you or of a God who will bless you if you obey or of the Bible as a, as a trustworthy guide to life. And many of them don't actually believe it. But just like the characters in Miracle on 34th Street, they all have personal reasons that that they benefit from perpetuating this story about God or about Santa Claus, about some man up there with a beard, whether it's up there at the North Pole or up there in heaven. And then people believe it, and it's viewed as a moral good. To believe is good. To believe without seeing is good. Even Jesus said that. If you, if you blessed are those who believe without seeing. But that leaves us with the question of what the fuck are we supposed to believe without seeing? Just the first thing that someone tells us? That's what most of us believe. We believe the, the things we were indoctrinated with as children. And if all of this was just hypotheticals and seminary papers and and Christmas movies, it wouldn't matter. We could go take a nap. This podcast wouldn't need to exist. But the problem is that there's really negative real-world consequences for this because, for example, masks and vaccines, right? We're trying to fight a fucking pandemic, and all these people are scoffing at common sense and at science and at evidence, saying, well, yeah, that's what you say, but we have a different idea because of our religious leaders and because of our religious understanding and the end times and the mark of the beast and the microchip and all this stuff that I used to believe when I was a teenager, when I was a kid. You may have at some point as well. Look, I am no fucking Richard Dawkins or whoever your stereotype is of a strict rationalist, atheist, like, I won't believe in things I can't see. I'm not like that. Love is real. Poetry is real. Music is real. Now, is love the foundational element of ultimate reality? I don't know. I don't think that we can say that. The world doesn't seem to present that as as the truth. But can we please stop gaslighting people? Whether the man up there is Santa Claus at the North Pole or our Father who art in heaven, it's not a good thing to believe shit just because somebody told you. Because a lot of times, the people who are telling you those things are just doing it to get your fucking money. Now, I like Santa Claus. He's jolly. What's not to like, right? He rides around in a carriage drawn by reindeers. That's a power move. You got to respect it. And I think the story of Santa Claus and belief and childhood wonder and open your heart to the spirit of Christmas, all that shit has value. But I think it's worth making a distinction between myths and metaphysical realities. And if we are telling our children these stories, and if we allow our children to go years without telling them the truth, messing with people's minds and telling them to believe things that aren't real, and even manipulating their realities, whether with plates of half-eaten cookies or glitter falling from the ceiling of a church that we say is the Spirit of God, whatever it is, 
I think it's important to differentiate between myths and reality and have your myths, but know that they're myths, that the myths are just stories and that reality is what it is. Don't tell people that it's a moral good to believe things that violate your common sense just because somebody told you. That's how we got in this mess. We interrupt our program to bring you commercial advertisements. Okay, if you listen to podcasts, I know you have heard ads by now for that website company that offers easy, do-it-yourself websites that you can build in a weekend. But if you've ever tried to build a website, I'm sure you know that it's not always as easy as it sounds. In fact, it can be really frustrating if you don't know what you're doing, despite the ubiquitous promises of a certain podcast advertiser. That's why I created Kavatica Design Company. I've been building websites for about 10 years now, and most of my clients come to me and say, I just wish somebody could handle this for me. I make websites that look awesome and are super easy to use and to update and don't cost thousands of dollars. If you have magic inside you that you want to share with the world and you need a website to do it, I'd love to help you out. Go to Kavatica.co, that's C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A, Kavatica.co. Send me a message, and when you do, let me know you came from the podcast because podcast listeners get 10% off. This is the part of the podcast where I ask for money. If you love the show, please consider becoming a supporter by donating $5 a month. In addition to my eternal gratitude, supporters get ad-free versions of every episode, so you never have to hear this again. Just go to existentialhappyhour.com support. Thanks. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program. In the beginning was shit. At least, as far back as we can remember, shit. Strain your mind and see if you can recall a time when humanity wasn't frayed at the edges on our good days, or torn open all the way to the core on most days. In the beginning was shit, a world senseless and void, and very, very dark. These days, optimism seems like absurdity. We keep murdering one another, choosing madmen to rule over us, stripping our planet bare, and destroying our own Mother Earth, tripping over ourselves in a mad dash to consume as much as we can get our hands on. Consume lies, consume the planet, consume each other, consume ourselves, until all that is left is shit. In the beginning was shit, and God hovered over it all like a storm over the churning sea. Then God spoke into the darkness and said, Let there be light. And not a damn thing happened. God's whisper was lost in the roar of humanity gone mad. The long scream of pain from the beginning of time till now. The endless cry of almost hopelessness against the dark. If we heard it at all, we barely acknowledged the voice fluttering at the periphery of our consciousness. How could we entertain the divine 
when we are creatures of shit. From shit we come, to shit we return. Blessed be the name of the distant Lord we cannot know. Then desperate to find its way to us, the voice became flesh and dwelt among us, which being translated means, then God took off his shoes and stepped into our shit. If you believe in the mystery of the incarnate Christ, which I did once upon a time, you might believe that once upon a time, 2,000 Christmases ago, give or take, there was a man who was also God. The stories handed down to us say he was born in a barn, or maybe a house, amidst the common elements of our planet, blood, water, four-legged creatures, dirt, straw, and yes, shit. They say he lived with dirty hands, playing in the mud, scribbling in the dust, embracing the sick, breaking all the rules. Sometimes it seems like he went out of his way to fuck up our conception of how a god should behave. By the end, he was kneeling before the people who should have worshipped him, wiping the shit off our tired feet with his own divine hands. In the beginning, shit. Dear God, it's been a long time since then, and we've almost forgotten what it felt like when your skin touched our own. But if it's not too late to ask for a Christmas miracle, could you find your way back to our weary planet and join us in our shit one more time? Amen. This brings us to baby Jesus. The reason for the season, or so I once believed. Keep Christ in Christmas, I was told. But how do you keep Christ in Christmas when you don't believe in God anymore? William Hamilton was the theologian most famous for his work in the Death of God movement. He once said, The paradoxical task of the theologian today is the unveiling of religious meaning in a world bathed in the darkness of God's absence. This is why I love Advent. Advent is a part of the Christian calendar where believers wait in anticipation for the coming Christ, lighting candles against the darkness and waiting for Christmas Day when God becomes present in the world. For me, as an unbeliever, Advent never ends. I feel the heaviness of God's absence and have no hope or expectation that a supernatural creator is going to break through the veil of our weary world and bring peace on earth, good news for humanity. So in the shadow of the absence of God, I continue to work to make meaning, even religious meaning, as Hamilton said. For this part of the story, I want to take us back to December 2018. It was the second Sunday of Advent, and I was preaching that day. I was preaching at the last church I attended before I broke up with Jesus, my last sermon as a Christian, though I didn't know it at the time. In this sermon, I talked about my failing attempts to continue to believe in God, and I confessed my desire that even so, I might still be able to find something that felt like an encounter with the divine. The audio for that sermon came from the sound guy at the church, my friend Fred. He took my words and wrapped them in his music, his own composition of strange strings and echoes. And I want to share it with you now.
God is the God of the mountains. As long as we've been telling stories about God, we've been telling stories about God as the God of the mountains. And if you want to meet God, that's where you go. You go to the mountains. And some of the places that were the mountains for me, where I was told this is where you go if you want to meet God, is in the Bible, in worship music, in right belief, in church, in communion. These are the mountains. If you want to meet the divine, go there because that's where God is. But this is the second Sunday of Advent. And on the second Sunday of Advent, we hear the voice of one crying in the wilderness that says, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And it sounds like good news until we get to the part of the verse where the prophet says, every valley shall be exalted and the mountains and hills are made low. And all of a sudden, it's very disorienting. Because the mountains are where we go to be God, and if the mountains and hills are made low, where will we find God? So the invitation of the second Sunday of Advent, the second candle that we light, comes to us in the form of a catastrophic reorganization of geographical features. The paths are made straight, the valleys are exalted, the mountains are made low, and we don't recognize anything anymore. So we're here with expectant hope for Advent that we'll meet with God, but nothing looks familiar. And like the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. But the hills aren't there. The mountains have disappeared. And the places where we used to be God are nothing but rubble. If you want to hear the voice of God, read the Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God audibly, read the Bible out loud. That's, uh, that's what I was told. And... I very much wanted to meet God, and so I read the Bible a lot. They used to tell me that the Bible is a love letter from God, which is great until you actually read the Bible. But you read this and you're like, wow, God really sucks at writing love letters. think that because I didn't know I was allowed to think that. Instead, I thought, wow, I really suck at being loved by God. And I thought it was a problem with myself. I thought, if I'm reading the Bible and I don't feel loved by this, this is because I am not yet good enough. I've got to try harder. I've got to do more. i got to read it again. It was a mountaintop where I had been told, go here if you want These days, when I speak most honestly to people about the Bible, what I find myself saying is, I hate the Bible. I hate the Bible. I hate the Bible. It took me a long time to admit that because I didn't think I was allowed to think that either. But the reality is that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that sword has been wielded against me and against people I care about more times than I can count. I can't open the leather-bound book and read it and meet God there because I still have too many wounds and too many people I care about to meet God on this now. Church music has also been a place where I have tried to meet God. 
the God is as good and as loving and as hopeful as the God that we sing about. And I found a church like that. Unfortunately, it was about 1,500 miles away from where I lived at the time. I truly believed that that was going to be the mountain where I met God, and for three months it was. Everybody left the church. I said, all I ever wanted, God, was to meet you in the church. And here I finally found a church where I can meet you. And then it all dissolved in my hands. And so that mountain was gone. Just like when I couldn't find God in the Bible and I couldn't find God in my belief, I have thought for a long time that there's something wrong with me, that I walk into church and don't feel anything. Emmanuel, God is with us. That's that's what Advent is about, right? The whole Christmas season is the story 
of waiting for God. We light candles, we sing songs, we hope into the darkness, waiting for God to arrive. Incarnation is the reason for the season. And every year, just on schedule, God arrives in the form of baby Jesus on December 25th. But if God is gone, what are we waiting for? What are we expecting to arrive? Why do we wait during these dark weeks leading up to Christmas if there's no guarantee that God is coming? Where do we look for God when all the places where we had thought that God would be are gone? Our lives are rich miracles full of potential for meaning and connection arising from the processes of nature itself unfolding. But there's no Heavenly Father who has our backs. No guarantee that all will be made right in the end. We wait all the same. We wait because waiting is part of the experience of being a human. We wait because life requires us to wait. Because waiting is a way of spiritually acknowledging the reality of our finite human existence, of bowing to that which we can't control. The cold weather, the shorter days, the pandemic, the losses, the parts of our human life that are just outside of our control and we wish that they were other. We wish for a Christmas miracle. We wish for Santa Claus to bring presents under a tree. We wish for God to appear as a human so that we can touch the hem of his garment and be made okay. But our waiting is without certainty. It's without guarantee. Waiting is how we respond to the absence of God. Because this loss of God that I'm talking about is not just a cognitive decision. It's an experiential reality for those of us who at one time believed in a real, present, personal being who loved us and no longer are able to maintain belief in that any more than we can maintain belief in a man at the North Pole who brings us presents when we're good. Both stories, as lovely as they are, lack the strength to be foundational truths for our lives, and so we are forced to find a way to live without them. And with this comes a sense of loss, a sense of not having. Not just that we've lost idols, but that we've lost God. One of the things I believed when I believed in God was that without God, without an object for our spiritual orientation, we could have no spirituality. I realize now that this is a mistake. There's a joke that says, atheists must hate Thanksgiving because who do they have to say thank you to? And the idea behind that strikes me as absurd now, that somehow gratitude cannot be expressed directly to what is. It needs to be expressed to a man in the sky beyond what is. And that somehow expressing gratitude to an invisible being has more aesthetic value than expressing gratitude to being itself. The same could be said, I think, for waiting. 
we're not waiting for God. We're not waiting for an intelligent being in heaven to decide to take an action and interfere with the world. We are waiting within the very fabric of the universe. We are waiting as organisms which have arisen in a planet where waiting is part of the rhythm of reality. So at Advent, we light candles. We join our Christian siblings in singing songs of lament, in praying prayers of longing. Not because we have the hope of resurrection or the certainty of God's kingdom coming, but because we are finding our place in the family of things, to borrow the words of Mary Oliver. And our place in the family of things is a place right now of waiting for releasing into the void our illusions of control and accepting that the waves of the universe roll on and on and we have this one moment with them and then we're gone. I want to share another piece with you that I wrote six years ago on the first Sunday of Advent, A Prayer into the Void. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what the church people say on the first Sunday of Advent. Oh, that you would rend the inky blackness and crash into this ice-cold planet in an explosion of light again. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Fuck this shit, O Lord. This is my tired Advent prayer. Fuck this shit indeed. Amen which being translated means, How long, O Lord, until you heal what has been rent nearly beyond repair? Wait. Stay awake. Lean into the longing. Hope against the darkness. But I am tired of waiting. I am impatient with patience. And I am tired of being tired too. So fuck this shit or rend the heavens and come down. Either one will do. Oh, that the Christmas miracle of God in a manger wouldn't be just a one-time magic trick. Because, God, we could use a Christmas miracle these days. Because by now, the ice and the snow and the darkness are already old friends, but we haven't even reached the darkest day yet. And I'm scared, and I'm bleeding, and I'm tired. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Wait. Stay awake. Lean into the longing. Hope against the darkness. That's what the church people say. But I can count down the hours until sunrise. I can count down the days until Christmas. I cannot count down the days until hope, because I do not know. Hope that is seen is not hope. Yet, I am tired of hoping in the darkness. Fuck this shit. Advent is a season for longing and lament. That's what the church people say. So God, if you're listening, I hope you're okay with all of this. And P.S. God, if it's not too much trouble, could you spare a few moments to rend the heavens and come down? 
Amen. I want to talk about incarnation. See, back when I wrote that prayer, I believed that the Christmas story was true. And I wanted an experience of God that was as real as Christmas. I wanted to know that I had encountered God with us and not just the projections of my own wishful thinking. But the God I prayed to seemed always a little bit too far away. The Christmas miracle had apparently been a once-and-done event 2,000 years ago, and all we had now was the stories. We were supposed to have the indwelling of the Spirit, and the indwelling of the Spirit was supposed to make the stories believable. But though I asked many times, I never had enough Spirit to convince me to keep believing that the story was real. So when I prayed for God to rend the heavens, I still held out hope that there would be some supernatural intervention in my life, some way of encountering God that would make belief possible. But mostly I have experienced God as an absence. And for a long time, I thought the absence meant that I couldn't experience God. I thought that if I couldn't bring myself to believe in the man up there, like the kids in the Christmas movies, nothing wonderful could happen. And yet, how could I believe if I had believed so many times before and nothing wonderful had happened? So I've given up hope on that, accepted the story to be a myth after so long of fighting the experience of absence, of looking for God despite the emptiness. After so long of praying for God to fill the void inside of me, I've turned to the void inside of me as a place where I may encounter divinity in the absence of God. That the actual experience of longing, of unfulfilled waiting, of being awake in a universe where we are very much alone, may have theological wisdom. That experience has depth and it has value. There's something that I can learn from that. And it's driven me to continue looking outside of the walls of the church to see what I may encounter when the mountains are made low, when the places where I had looked for God are gone. And what I'm finding there is not God after all, a tidy redemption arc. You had to not believe in God so that you could believe in God again. No, still not Still not that. Maybe it will be someday. I don't know. It's still not that. And like the ancient poets and the mystics and the death of God theologians, I'm being drawn to the mystery at the heart of existence, at the heart of the universe, something deep within reality, not transcendently outside of reality, not something that exists outside of space and time, not a being with a plan but being itself, the ground of our being, the theologians call it, the whence of our existence. I'm no longer praying that God will rend the heavens and come down. I don't believe anymore that all flesh will see God's salvation. I don't hold on to that kind of hope anymore. Holding on to that hope was killing my soul, and I needed to let it go. 
but I still believe that in the absence of God, we can meet what may rightly be called divine, even though it's in no way supernatural. I now believe that the loss of God, the absence of God, is a necessary condition for my salvation, for my spiritual belonging in the universe. As long as I was waiting for God to rend the heavens and come down, I couldn't see the divine mystery of the world of nature all around me and within me. This is why I love incarnation. Incarnation is the idea within Christianity that says God became one of us, took on human flesh and lived among us. I want to take that idea and play with it a little bit, turn it inside out and see what it may become. I want to push the doctrine of incarnation to its utmost limits and suggest that God did not become human with the birth of Christ, but that God is nothing other than everything that is natural, that that God was never anything other than with us. For this part of the podcast, I'm going to share with you a theology paper that I wrote about incarnation and Advent, exploring the ideas of God with us after the death of God. This is called Silent Night, Holy Night, a radical theology of Advent, Theotokos, and Incarnation. Emmanuel, God is with us. This is the claim at the heart of the Advent season. This is the reason for lighting candles patiently, for waiting expectantly for God to make God's home among us, born of a virgin, Christ the Lord. Incarnation is the reason for the season. But God is dead. In the shadow of Nietzsche's madman and Darwin's theory of evolution and Hitler's holocaust, and Sagan's insignificant pale blue dot. How can we keep lighting candles and waiting for a God that is always receding into the darkness? What value does the story of a baby in a manger have for us who have surrendered our wishful hope of a Savior arriving from the supernatural realm at any moment to reveal God's nature and set everything right? How can we claim that this is a silent night, holy night, if silence itself is the final revelation of reality? In this paper, I want to show that there's hope. I want to accept the task of the radical theologian, the paradoxical task of unveiling religious meaning in a world bathed in the darkness of God's absence. Like William Hamilton said, my intent is to draw theological value from the Christmas story, despite the loss of belief in anything resembling what we once called God. I want to unwrap the Christmas gift of a God beyond God. Part 1. Advent As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, and all people will see God's salvation. That's from Luke 3, verses 4 through 6. 
Advent is a season of waiting, a sense of preparation. Traditionally, it brims with the hopeful confidence that our waiting will be rewarded by the imminent arrival of a transcendent deity also known as the Lord, and all people will see God's salvation. This is what's written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is what Luke cited to introduce the character of Jesus, and this is what Christians read during Advent liturgies today. For Christians, Advent is a season of waiting and preparation, pregnant with the expectation of salvation. But it is written in the book of the prophet John Caputo that salvation does not come by God, but from God. In provocative language, he names the supreme being an idol and declares that the God of power is a false God. This God is dangerous to us and to himself. Most of all, this God, what we have long understood to be the only true God, is half blasphemous and mythological, in Caputo's words. It is because of this idolatry that we need to be saved, not by the power of God, we need to be saved from the power of God. Caputo affirms that salvation lies beyond theism, beyond omnipotence, and points to the death of God as the path of life. The salvation we await comes not by revelation of the presence of God, but by the revelation of the absence of God. This apophatic deconstruction is foreshadowed in Isaiah's prophecy when he speaks of mountains made low. In Hebrew mythology, the mountains were often sites of encounter with the divine. God is the God of the mountains, as I said in that sermon earlier. So the leveling of the mountains in the book of the prophet Isaiah is spiritually apocalyptic, theologically devastating, a catastrophic reorganization of geographic features. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help, writes the psalmist. But when I turn my gaze toward the familiar peaks, there's nothing there. The mountains have disappeared. The landscape is no longer recognizable. There are no familiar landmarks. The places where we used to meet God are nothing but rubble. It is Advent, and we're supposed to be waiting with expectant hope for some kind of meaningful experience of the divine, just like the stories we used to hear in the old traditions. But we are alone. Advent is heavy with absence. God is dead. In affirming the death of God, we are giving testimony to the weight of this absence. We are not talking about the absence of the experience of God, confesses Thomas J.J. Altizer, but we're talking about the experience of the absence of God. In the shadow of this absence, the Advent season of waiting is transformed into an embodied confession of the death of God. Hamilton writes that waiting refers to the whole experience called the death of God, in contrast to the confident waiting for a certain revelation of God, this waiting comes with a sense of not having, of not believing, of having lost not just the idols or the gods of religion, but God himself. Despite its godlessness, the Advent waiting that I am suggesting, though, is not inert, resigned, or hopeless. Hamilton writes that there is an expectation, even hope, that distinguishes this faithful waiting from the anguish and gloom typically associated with the absence of God. Thomas J.J. Altizer affirms this hopeful potential as well when he writes, 
When faith is open to the most terrible darkness, it will be receptive to the most redemptive light. At Advent, we wait for we know not what. We anticipate what we cannot imagine. We respond to the faint echo of what Caputo describes as an anonymous call, a call which leaves us uncertain about who or what is calling, what is being called for, what is being recalled. With Isaiah, we anticipate the loss of the mountains. We accept the loss of the God we once found there. We hope for the salvation all the same. We pray into the silence. How long, O Lord? At Advent, we wait into the void. Part 2. Theotokos Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. That's from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. The story of Christmas begins in a womb. Our Father who art in heaven begets his only son through the body of a human woman, Mary, the mother of God. That's what Theotokos means. At least, this is how the story usually goes. But the Advent absence of God invites us to reinterpret the story of divinity born from a womb. It invites us to embrace imminent divinity in contrast to a transcendent God. It invites us to read the story of the Blessed Virgin Mary through the lens of feminist theology, which affirms that divinity is to be found in the world, not outside of it. In the book Pantheologies, Mary Jane Rubinstein describes the God-world split of traditional Western metaphysics as one where, quote, God is said to be anthropomorphic, unchanging, rational, and masculine, while the world is coded as animal, changeable, irrational, and feminine. She cites Grace Jansen, who argues that these transcendent or dualist conceptions of God privilege spirit and masculinity and reason and light and humanity over matter and femininity, passion, darkness, and the natural world. In this way, the attributes ascribed to the god of theism reinforce oppressive hierarchies and systemic injustice. The Jewish feminist theologians Carol Christ and Judith Plaskow also speak about the systemic injustice arising from the hierarchies of God-world dualism. They say God has generally been understood to transcend the world, and men have been seen as capable of transcendence through rational thinking, while women have been understood to be trapped in imminence, mired in body and nature. They cite Rosemary Radford Ruther, who said that women's liberation requires the transformation of classical dualisms and a reintegration of God and the world. This is an invitation to surrender the transcendent divine in exchange for imminent divinity, to embrace pantheism over theism, to replace God with everything. Echoing this natural language, Carol Wayne White speaks of human life as one distinct biotic form emerging from and participating in a series of evolutionary processes that constitute the diversity of life. 
our humanity emerges out of an awareness and desire to be more than a conglomeration of pulsating cells. We are nature made aware of itself. Jewish theologian Richard Rubinstein emphasizes the maternal implications of this God, what he calls holy nothingness, what other theologians call the ground or the source or the abyss. These designations have maternal overtones. They reflect a preference for metaphors rooted in maternity rather than paternity. Those are Rubinstein's words. He speaks of the ocean as a metaphor for God and the womb as a surrogate ocean providing mammals with a replica of their original aquatic habitat through which they can reproduce in an encompassing fluid and recapitulate the evolution of the race in their own ontogenesis. Rubinstein says that the God of the Bible, the Supreme King, the Father, the Creator, the Judge, creates like a male, producing something external to himself. In contrast, God, understood as the ground and source, creates like a mother in and through her own substance. So Mary, the mother of God, becomes the symbolic location of this embodied creative event as life emerges from the world without animating interference from a transcending God, divinity emerges from the womb of Mary without the help of an overshadowing father. In the absence of God's transcendent paternity, the Theotokos, the mother of God, is a powerful symbol of this radically imminent divinity. A virgin conceives. There is no father. The world brings forth life. There is no creator. Emmanuel, God among us, is not begotten from the privileged realm of masculinity, spirit, reason, light, as Western metaphysics would see it. Rather, divinity emerges from the world, from matter, from femininity, from materiality, from passion. Without the overshadowing of the Most High, The Virgin Mary becomes the mother of God. This is, to borrow Plaskow's words again, God the verb, the vision of the sacredness of everything that is, the goddess pouring herself into the endless and varied forms of the world. This is not the Lord of history at work here, but the infinitely fertile and inventive source of life. Part 3. Incarnation Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Isaiah 64.1 Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that's what I used to pray with the church people on the first Sunday of Advent. Oh, that the Christmas miracle wouldn't be a one-time magic trick. How long, oh Lord? I knew all the stories and doctrines about incarnation. I sang all the songs about God with us. But though I clung to the once-upon-a-time story that said God had been born in a barn 2,000 years ago, my faith in that story was slipping. I longed for God to once again be with us to tear open the veil between heaven and earth, to rend the heavens and come down like he did on that first Christmas. But the God to whom I prayed was lodged permanently in the heavens, and I was trapped here in the world. Incarnation seemed like a distant myth. 
Now I realize that it was perhaps this very notion of God that prevented the experience of miraculous incarnation. If so, the absence of God, the death of God, makes room for the possibility of incarnation again. Thomas J.J. Altheiser suggests this when he writes, To the extent that faith or vision knows an eternal and unmoving sacred, it can never know the reality of the incarnation. Only through the loss of God can we anticipate a new reality of the incarnation, an incarnation that will unite the radical sacred and the radical profane. In moving from the God of heaven to the God that is the world, the incarnation instantiates the collapse of what Mary Jane Rubinstein calls the opposition between God and the world. According to Altizer, any incarnation that reveals God without negating God is a half-assed incarnation. That's not how he said it, of course. He said it this way. Insofar as Christian theology has understood the incarnate word as an epiphany of the primordial deity, it has set itself against the actual process of the incarnation. What he's saying here is that the only way the word can actually be made flesh is to move into flesh without any claim to the transcendent, to the unmoved, to the supernatural, to redeem a profane world. Incarnation must be profane. This profane incarnation is the consummation of mountains made low. It is a continual process of spirit becoming flesh, of eternity becoming time, or of the sacred becoming profane, to use the words of Altizer again. This is not God temporarily inhabiting the material realm. 33 years on this world, and then ascending back into heaven from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. This is not the word made flesh while continuing to exist also on a transcendent plane as the Holy Trinity forever and ever. Amen. Leaving behind the transcendent and looking only to the profane world for the meaning of incarnation, we see divinity emerging from the natural order. This divinity is not the embodiment of a transcendent reality, but rather an emergent reality within nature. John Caputo affirms this when he writes, The rule of God rises from within the world. It does not descend upon us from on high. The kingdom of God, if there's anything that can go by that name, is within us. It is not a powerful force intervening from without. So we follow the Christmas star to Bethlehem, anticipating an encounter with a God from beyond time and space, and instead we find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. We find divinity in the dust and straw and warmth and smell of a barn. We find life emerging from the womb of nature itself. This is a theological scandal. The Incarnation, according to Mary Jane Rubinstein, performs the monstrous conflations of which the Christian accuses the pantheist 
introducing a dark, feminized, sexualized, and changeable materiality into the very substance of God. In his famous Divinity Address, Ralph Waldo Emerson infamously suggested that Jesus was not uniquely God, not Jehovah come down from heaven. Rather, Jesus was uniquely aware of the way in which God incarnates himself in man and evermore goes forth anew to take possession of the world. As suggested by Hegel, the birth of Jesus is the moment of divinity being emptied from heaven and relocated to earth. In the essay One Percenters, Black Atheists, Secular Humanists, and Naturalists, William David Hart says that we are all gods who shit. He uses this phrase to describe the state of Homo sapiens, human animals who shit, succumb to disease, grow old, and die. The baby in Bethlehem is a potent symbol of the paradox of human divinity. The human body is where divinity and animal nature meet. It is where the ideas of the sacred and the profane are collapsed into one another. Hart goes on to say, humans are paradoxical animals. We have godlike abilities to consciously manipulate evolutionary processes and transcendent sign-enabled imagination but our transcendent fantasies can never be separated from the embodied nature of our existence, our animal nature that is bound to kill and eat, to shit and stink. Though we're limited by flesh and finitude, in human bodies we are the locus of unique divine expression. This is good news of great joy that shall be for all people. How long, O Lord, until you rend the heavens and come down? The answer lies in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. The miracle of the baby Jesus is not that God became human. We didn't find a magical, hypostatic union, no eternal logos, no member of the Trinity in human form. We found a regular baby emerging from his mother's womb, just like each one of us did, an animal among animals, but glowing with divinity, a God who shits. God does not rend the heavens and come down, but the baby in the manger tears wide open the veil between heaven and earth, revealing that all separation was illusion all along. This is the hope offered by the silent night, holy night. Though we live in the shadow of the death of God, the people who walk in darkness see a great light. The season of Christmas is an invitation to an experience of God in the most unexpected places. This is a God who saves not by presence, but by absence. Divinity is not begotten by the inseminating power of the Most High, but it emerges from the ocean, from the womb, from the ground of being. The baby we call Jesus is not God with us, but he is God as us, God from us, God for us, 
God among us. I wish there was more. I would love to tell you to hang your stockings because Santa Claus is coming tonight. I would love to tell you to light your candles because Jesus is arriving any day now. I don't think I can. But I can give you the gift of this, of all of this. Of meaning from Christmas that doesn't depend on our ability to believe in fantastical stories. Not stories about Santa, not stories about Jesus. We can let go of all the attempts to convince ourselves of the metaphysical realities of those things. I have no expectation that I'll see Jesus or Santa Claus. Not in this life, not in the next. But I still believe in love. I believe in the spirit of Christmas. And I believe that within this world, as it is, there is so much mystery and so much beauty and so much wonder that it can even be called magic. So I want to end this with a prayer I wrote last year. A prayer into the void. A prayer into the mystery. A prayer into the depths of being. O silent infinite, being beyond being, which transcends existence, or which exists not at all, except in our shared desire for you. Our hearts are filled with stories, myths, and songs that say once upon a time, on a silent holy night, you were one of us. Could it be true? Could you really be born like us? hidden in humanity, trapped in flesh. Like children waiting by the tree on Christmas Eve to see if the myths are true, in silence we wait for what we do not know. May we catch some whisper of you, O silent infinite, a clatter on the rooftop, a cry in the manger, divinity all around us, an echo of hope. That's it. That's Existential Happy Hour. I'm Micah J. Murray. Thanks for joining me today. There's a website, existentialhappyhour.com. Check it out. You'll find all the podcast episodes there, notes, links to guests, merch, all the cool stuff. It's on there. Also, Instagram, Twitter, Existential Happy Hour. Look it up. You can also connect with me directly on Instagram or Twitter at Micah J. Murray, micahjmurray.com. Send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Shout out to some folks who helped me make this awesome. Art for the podcast was designed by my friend Lucas Tanell with photos from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. The countdown you heard at the beginning was the voice of Jack King from the Apollo 11 mission, which sent humans to the surface of the moon in the summer of 1969. Music for the podcast was created by Nerd Mac Music. Thanks most of all to you for listening. Subscribe on iTunes. Give me a five stars. You know the drill. Tell your friends, blah, blah, whatever. See you next time. Thanks.